This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Oncuzine Brief, I talk with Holly Laduca, a certified genetic counselor and manager of clinical research oncology at Ember Genetics. The company Holly works for, Ember Genetics, is a leading clinical diagnostics company offering genetic testing, which includes screening and diagnosis for conditions including hereditary cancer, hereditary cardiovascular disease, neurodevelopmental disorders, epilepsy, and other diseases. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncuzine Brief. As part of Conica Minolta Precision Medicine, Ember Genetics translates scientific research into what the company calls clinically actionable test results based upon a deep understanding of the human genome and the biology behind genetic disease. This, according to the company, enables more prescriptive, proactive, and preventive care. And with an eclectic mix of backgrounds and specialties, a team of doctors, scientists, genetic counselors, lab technicians, artists, ocean lovers, and science geeks, the people at Ember Genetics are looking for answers using the most advanced technology and quality processes in the diagnostics industry. This unique team of dedicated people is committed to delivering the most accurate genetic test results possible. And when it comes to making important healthcare decisions, the company believes that patients would choose the most reliable and comprehensive test for themselves and for their family. But what is genetic testing? In short, it is a type of medical test that identifies changes in chromosomes, genes, and proteins. The results of a genetic test can confirm or rule out a suspected genetic conditions or help determine a person's chance of developing or passing on a genetic disorder, which may lead to a disease. Generally, there are two main types of genetic testing. If you have cancer, the doctor may have told you about somatic or tumor testing. This test involves a sample of the tumor. The DNA in a tumor is studied to determine if different treatments may be better or worse for the patient. The DNA in a tumor is studied to determine if different treatments may be better or worse for the patient. In this case, the oncologist or his or her team will be the best resource to discuss this type of genetic testing. The second type of genetic testing is called germline genetic testing and is done using a blood or saliva sample. The DNA in blood cells is studied to see if there is a mutation that causes an increased risk to develop cancer. This test is both for people who have cancer, but also for people who do not. And the results can be best discussed with a genetic counselor or a healthcare provider who can discuss the genetic testing results with you. The Oncuzine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal Oncuzine at oncuzine.com, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment and cancer prevention. Let's listen to our interview with Ms. Holly Laduca. Holly, welcome to the Oncogene Brief. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Well, before we're going to talk about uh, genetic counseling, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got here. Sure. So um, I am a genetic counselor by training. I graduated in 2010 from Northwestern's Genetic Counseling Program. Um, After graduating from there, I worked in a community-based cancer genetics clinic for a couple of years before coming to Ambry. Um, So I've been here for almost eight years now, which is, it's been really exciting. So in my current role, I oversee the curation of our clinical research database and also engage in various oncology research collaborations. Some of those are in collaboration with other clinicians and academic institutions, and then um, some of those are just studies 
that we perform internal to Ambry. Now, you said that you are a, a genetic counselor. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there may be a little bit of uh, confusion about that. Uh, what that means. It's a long word and people don't necessarily understand uh, the meaning of that. Tell me a little bit about what uh, you do to help people and what it actually is on a daily basis what you do. So my day-to-day role right now is a little bit different than a genetic counselor who practices in the clinical setting. So most genetic counselors are in a traditional genetic counseling role where they work in in a clinic and they meet with patients to evaluate the likelihood of um, the patient having a genetic condition and helping them, um, helping interpret their family history information to decide whether any genetic testing would be appropriate for them. Sometimes patients meet with a genetic counselor and after reviewing all the clinical information, the genetic counselor might say that genetic testing actually is not recommended, but in, in many cases, they will evaluate the history and find out that genetic testing could be helpful for a patient. So genetic counselors are, um, are certified healthcare professionals. Genetic counselors complete a master's training program in genetic counseling and then sit for a, an exam with the American Board of Gene- Genetic Counseling to become a certified provider. Yeah, so... Before the break, you you said you're not a doctor, uh, but you are definitely in a team of healthcare professionals. Now, in that role, um, when a patient comes to a doctor and and, and, and basically discusses or sees what what their needs may be, where do you step in? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are several different entry points to seeing a genetic counselor. Sometimes the first someone's first exposure to a genetic counselor is when their physician recommends that they see one. So, for example, a clinician might be taking a a family history, getting to know a patient, and they find, oh, wow, there's a bunch of early onset cancer in this family or several family members with breast cancer. They might recommend that their patient go see a genetic counselor and and set that referral in place. Other times, patients are more proactive about seeing a genetic counselor. They might not have had it recommended to them by another clinician. They might find out information um, online or talking to, to a friend, and they might seek genetic counseling on their own to schedule an appointment to have their to have a, a formal genetics risk assessment. Now, um, and, and this is also one of the things, if you have cancer and or if you um, may be a family member of cancer, how important is it to know the, what they call the genetic predisposition or the potential? Does it help um, in, in preventing cancer? Yes. So when, when patients pursue genetic testing, um, if they're identified to carry a, a pathogenic mutation in a cancer gene, oftentimes we would recommend that they undergo increased screening. So screening typically would begin at an earlier age than we would recommend for the general population and also at more frequent intervals. So for example, patients who have hereditary predisposition to colorectal cancer would have a colonoscopy every one to two years, and that would start you know, in their, in their 20s. So it, management would definitely change. And by by pursuing increased screening, patients are able to, you know, we're able to detect cancer at an earlier and more treatable stage to hopefully result in a better outcome for patients. In some cases, we are also able to offer prevention options for patients. So for example, there are some hereditary cancer syndromes where Patients are face a high lifetime risk for ovarian cancer. And so since that's not a cancer we can screen for well, we would recommend that patients have their ovaries removed in some cases. So it, it definitely can offer patients options for early detection and cancer prevention. And it also helps to make sure we're only offering that to patients who will benefit from it um, and not offering it inappropriately to patients who might not get the same benefit. 
Now, if you look at the, the total of um, prevention or percentages that are used, um, when, when, you, when you look at in, in the media, when you look at some of the, the medical press, it's often kind of mentioned that the actual number of or the actual percentage of, of people with familial heritage or um, cancer is relatively limited. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So it, it really just depends on what disease you're looking at. If we if we look at patients who are who come through our laboratory for clinical genetic testing for hereditary cancer, we find that approximately 10% of them will be identified to carry pathogenic mutations in cancer predisposition genes. That does vary based on the type of test that's ordered. For example, if a if a, if a provider ordered a panel of five genes versus 80 genes we would see a difference in mutation detection rate. Also, we know that certain certain cancer types um, have a higher germline mutation prevalence. So, for example, patients with ovarian cancer are more likely to have a mutation than patients with breast cancer. Um, but then the family history also plays a role in that too. So basically, the strength of the family history um, will also play a role in the likelihood of finding something on genetic testing. All that being said, it's generally approximately 10% detection rate. 10%, obviously that's uh, still a lot if you happen to be part of that. How do you start that communication? If, if, for example, a family member has a cancer, is diagnosed with cancer, and you see that maybe their aunt or maybe their mother or sister may also have breast cancer in, in, in a particular case, or maybe it's a, a link between breast cancer and ovarian cancer. How do you start that conversation First, a doctor, and then uh, maybe you're going to be involved with a patient or a potential patient. Sure. So, so some of the some of the red flags for hereditary cancer tend to be cancer diagnosed at an early age, multiple people in a family with the same type of cancer, people who have cancer multiple times, such as breast, having breast cancer twice, and there's also certain types of certain types of cancer, such as ovarian cancer, as I mentioned before, that that just are a red flag for um, hereditary predisposition on their own. And so um, clinicians are trained to recognize some of these features. And if something looks suspicious, that to, that would hopefully prompt a referral to you know, for genetic risk evaluation. And then once somebody meets with a genetic counselor, the family history is, is evaluated in detail. And based on the pattern of cancers in the family, um, the age of onset and, and various other factors, the genetic counselor would decide which test is is most appropriate and, and select which genes would be most appropriate to test in that case. Let's take a break. After the break, we're back with Holly Laduca. Ms. Laduca is Manager of Clinical Research Oncology at Ember Genetics. Some of the best sounds you'll ever hear are generic, safe, Effective, even money-saving, just like FDA-approved generic drugs. Even if they don't come in the exact same color or shape as their brand name equivalents, they have the same key ingredients and go through a rigorous review process. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist today and visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. Generics are safe, effective, and can save you money. You'll like the sound of that. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section, when dad injured his back, when your basketball star tore his ACL. Opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them just in case. 
But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting in homes across the country, and tragically, more than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets. Anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongesim Brief. If you're just joining us, today in the Ongesim Brief, we talk with Ms. Holly Laduca. Ms. Laduca is Manager of Clinical Research Oncology at Ember Genetics. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongesim Brief. Now, in another program, we um, um, actually a future program, we're actually going to talk about the availability of genetic tests and, and people sometimes are confused when they hear genetic tests um, and they see their advertisement on TV. Um, they may be confused about the fact that, well, that particular test may help me get an answer to whether I may have uh, a chance of getting cancer or another disease for that matter. Now, what you and, and Embry are, are doing, um, that's slightly different. Tell me a bit about that. Sure. So, so we are a clinical diagnostic laboratory, and the tests that we offer um, are aimed to detect alterations that would result in clinically actionable changes for, for patients. So I'll use um, hereditary breast cancer as an example. So for BRCA1 and 2 are commonly known breast and ovarian cancer predisposition genes. We, have, we perform a very comprehensive analysis of those genes to identify people who have a mutation in them. Once identified, that would lead to a diagnosis of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. So we, our tests are used to identify patients who are at risk for, for cancer and other diseases based on a single hereditary factor or mutation that, that's passed down through a family. There are many, te- many other types of genetic tests available. Some of them are used to to help somebody learn their ancestry, and some are used to, to test for the likelihood of developing more common diseases. But in our setting, um, they're used to diagnose hereditary cancer predisposition. So that is very a specific part, a specific test as such. Yes. Now, you are not only a genetic counselor, but you're also, what I said, a manager of uh, clinical research um, focusing on oncology. Uh, so your role, as you said, also in the first part, is a little bit different than a genetic counselor somebody may encounter in a uh, health uh, center. Tell me a little bit about your role in clinical research. Sure. So yes, I've been I've been fortunate enough to to have evolved into a role that involves clinical research. And while I while I might not be meeting with a patient face to face in the clinic setting, um, I'm fortunate enough to be able to help take. Um, take large data sets and translate them into information that can be helpful for, for patients across the country and across the, the world even. So it's, it's been very rewarding. So in my day-to-day role, I oversee the 
the curation of our clinical research database, we have tested hundreds of thousands of patients at Ambry Genetics, and we are able to to curate that information and maintain a large database of uh, genetic test results that we see, and for a large portion of those patients, also the corresponding clinical history information so that we can make sure that we are performing the most accurate variant interpretation possible, um, giving the patients most accurate results, and then also um, kind of pushing the envelope and, and um, you know, exploring pieces of hereditary cancer predisposition that were previously uncovered. Now, that means that, I mean, you're not only looking at, for example, this is a thing of one patient, but you have access to a lot of information from a, a lot of, of different patients. Now, do you see patterns in, in, in how um, cancer evolves in certain areas? Does that have an, uh, is that something that is included in genetic um, testing in this case? How do you mean how cancer develops or just how, um, just the evolution of hereditary cancer testing in general? Well, that that is part of it. But if you look at uh, the broader scheme, for example, you um, are, as a genetic counselor, you look at a certain region, um, mm -hmm. certain part of the world, maybe, maybe it's Arizona, maybe it's California, um, New York, or wherever it may be. Do you see patterns evolving in, 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 in hereditary cancer or in cancer in general that really kind of um, speak to the evolution of cancer in that respect? Yeah, so we definitely see see some um, some differences among different um, racial and ethnic groups. Um, in general, when we're talking about hereditary cancer predisposition, what we've learned so far is that hereditary cancer can affect anybody. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female or if you're African American or Caucasian. No one um, is completely exempt from <laughs> um, hereditary mm -hmm. cancer predisposition, all, all groups can be affected. Um, but in a recent study, we, we uh, dug into this a little bit further to, to learn more about genetic variation and predisposition to hereditary cancer, specifically with respect to the breast cancer population. And, and, and that was a study that was presented uh, earlier this year at the uh, annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology um, held in, in, uh, in June. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure, about yeah. the study, about what it involved. We were really excited about this study, and actually, the um, the medical oncology fellow who presented it received the, the ASCO Merit Award for this project. So we really, you know, much of the data that's been generated on hereditary cancer predisposition has been derived from Caucasian populations, and so I think, you know, while while that's been very valuable information to have, everyone has kind of just assumed that the same rules apply ac across various races and ethnicities. And um, we wanted to just dig into that further and find out, you know, is the mutation detection rate the same across racial and ethnic groups? Um, are cancer risks for breast cancer the same across different groups? And, um, you know, it really, it takes a large data set to be able to, to look into this. So we're, we were excited to do this. So in a study, we retrospectively, retrospectively reviewed a little over 75,000 women with breast cancer who had received hereditary cancer panel testing in our laboratory. And while most of those patients were non-Hispanic, we still had over 20,000 patients who were self-reported um, Black, Asian, Hispanic, and Ashkenazi Jewish um, ancestry. So we really wanted to do two main things in this study. First, we wanted to determine what the prevalence and spectrum of breast cancer gene mutations 
was in this in, in across these populations compared to non-Hispanic whites. And then also we wanted to estimate the associated breast cancer risk for each of these genes. And to do that, we used controls from the NOMAD database, which is a large reference uh, control database. Now, you mentioned about the fact that um, in this particular case, you, you looked at a cross-population of, of, of people with um, uh, different um, heritage. Mm-hmm. How important how important is to that, that understanding that um, Caucasian versus Black versus Hispanic, uh, that there is a difference in, in, in genetic uh, mutations? Right. So actually, we previously didn't really know um, how the mutation prevalence might differ. And one of the main findings in this study is that we found um, cancer predisposition mutations at similar at a similar frequency across races and ethnicities. So overall, um, the mutation detection rate ranged from 7.5% in patients with Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry to to just about 10% in Hispanics. And so, I mean, we're, mutations are prevalent a, across racial and ethnic groups. And so that was a really important takeaway because up until this point, we kind of assumed that that it was the same, but it's important to know that it's the same and to know that genetic testing has clinical utility for these patients, regardless of race, race and ethnicity. Um, one important finding, though, from the study was that we do see um, more variants of uncertain significance in certain racial and ethnic groups. So, for example, patients who, who are of Asian ancestry had the highest proportion of variants of unknown significance. And I think that that's something that's important to explain um, and understand about genetic testing. So if I could if I could dive into that a little yeah. bit, <laughs> that'd be great. Let's take a short break here, and then we continue our interview with Ms. Holly Laduca. Ms. Laduca is Manager of Clinical Research Oncology at Embry Genetics. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with a sun protection factor, or SPF, of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. UVA rays age the skin, UVB rays burn, and both cause cancer. But the perfect sunscreen doesn't count if you use it wrong. Don't need sunscreen on a cloudy day? Wrong. 80% of UV rays still get through the haze. Only use sunscreen at the beach? Nope. Anytime you're outside, UV rays attack the skin, so you need protection. And you have to reapply sunscreen every two hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Each day, researchers make discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Their progress is made possible with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Oncazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. Welcome back. I'm Peter Hoffland, and this is the Oncazine Brief. 
If you're just joining us, today in the Oncogene Brief, we talk with Holly Laduca. Ms. Laduca is Manager of Clinical Research Oncology at Ember Genetics. When patients pursue testing, these hereditary cancer genes are, are evaluated in depth. And so when we find a, a variant in a gene, it just means that it's a change in a gene that's different from, from almost everyone else in the population. And so it takes some additional work to determine whether or not that change is actually something that would cause disease or if it's just something that's benign and unique to you that's not going to have any impact on disease outcomes. So um, we have a team of a variant interpretation scientists who, who look into any potential aspect of that alteration. Is it, is it in a part of the gene that's really important to gene function? Is it common in the general population or is it rare in the population? Do we have, has there been any, any follow-up functional studies to show that, that in the human body that actually, that change actually disrupts gene function? So it, it takes some more work. And so sometimes at the end of the day, we're not able to make that determination. Sometimes we identify something and we say, you know what, there's this change in the DNA. We can't, we don't have enough information at this time to determine whether or not it causes disease. And that's called a variant of unknown significance. Um, this is this is a potential test result across all genetic testing. Um, I would basically think of it as an inconclusive result. It's not anything that would be acted upon clinically for in terms of clinical management recommendations. Patients with inconclusive results would be treated the same as a patient with a negative genetic test result. But it is important to know um, how prevalent these alterations are, so that so that genetic counselors can let their patients know what to expect. And one of the things that we found in this study is that that um, patients of certain races and ethnicities are more likely to have one of these inconclusive findings. And that's mostly due to the fact that some, some populations just haven't been as well studied um, with respect to genetic predisposition to human disease. It was in, so I guess to take that <laughs> taken together, it's just, um, just knowing that the rate of inconclusive findings among um, patients of Asian um, ancestry, um, African-American ancestry, Hispanic ancestry, are knowing that they're more likely to have an inconclusive result helps in counseling. And that way, patients aren't surprised when that, um, that type of result happens. Again, it's not anything bad that impacts clinical management, but it is important for uh, genetic counselors to be able to address that in the pretest counseling session. Holly, before the, uh, the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the test results that um, you saw uh, it presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology's annual meeting held earlier this year. Now, you, you mentioned that there were quite a few people uh, were involved in that, about 75,000 people, I understand. And um, people were from different races and, 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 and backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, what was, again, the, the major giveaway in that, a takeaway in that particular study? Sure. So yeah, the, the key takeaways are that uh, germline mutations are prevalent across all race, racial and ethnic groups that we studied. So and these, again, are all breast cancer patients. So um, this confirmed the utility of multi-gene panel testing, regardless of, um, of race and ethnicity. And this information can be used when, uh, when you're performing genetic counseling for patients to give them an idea of what to expect in terms of the outcome of testing. And then one other really important takeaway we didn't have a chance to talk about before the the, um, the break is that it really gave us a chance to improve our understanding of gene-specific breast cancer risk across races and ethnicities. So while the overall mutation prevalence is 
is, you know, within a, a couple percentages, a couple percentage points of one another, there are some genes that seem to have stronger effects in certain populations. And so that's definitely going to be important information to know as we continue to offer personalized medicine to patients and really think about um, what um, what strategies for early detection and cancer prevention that we're recommending. Right. And and obviously this is going to, um, and you mentioned the word personalized medicine, this is going to be affecting patients. This, this better understanding is going to affect patients around the globe. Now, if you are a patient uh, or if you're a family member of a patient and, and you listen to this radio show and you hear, well, there were so many thousands of people involved, but what does it do for me as an individual? What, what can you say to them? Yeah, I would say that, that for anybody who has concerns about, about predisposition to cancer and anybody who is motivated to learn more about that so that they can make sure they're pursuing the most appropriate screening and risk reduction options for their cancer risk level should, should definitely um, talk to their, their clinician about seeing a genetic counselor and, and even just, you know, seek out a genetic counseling referral on their own. You know, as, as we mentioned in, in one of the earlier segments, meeting with a genetic counselor doesn't always equal genetic testing. You know, meeting with a genetic counselor is the, the primary goal of that is, is to assess risk. And so in, in, the, in the oncology space, it's to assess someone's likelihood of having a, a mutation in a cancer predisposition gene and finding out if, if testing is appropriate for them. And there's also, you know, one important piece to know about risk assessment is that there's, there's ways to assess risk beyond genetic testing. Certainly genetic testing is an important piece of that, but sometimes um, patients pursue testing, their results are negative, but they still have a family history of breast cancer. And so they still might be considered at elevated risk compared to the general population. And it's really important to have that comprehensively assessed so that, that you can tailor your medical management appropriately. So I, I think I would tell anybody, again, if you're motivated to know more about, about your cancer risk and to do something about it, then I would recommend meeting with somebody to further, further discuss and evaluate that. Right. Well, definitely a good recommendation. Now, one word of caution. If you are not a patient, but you're a family member, and uh, from your genetic profiles, genetic the profile that you, you develop, um, you uh, maybe as a patient or a non-patient um, have a high risk uh, of, of getting breast cancer. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you're actually going to get breast cancer. It's not a guarantee situation, right? That's exactly right. So there, with very few exceptions, the more chance of developing cancer is not going to be 100%. There are there are rare cancer syndromes where where almost all patients will develop cancer, but for the most part, someone's risk is going to be in the range of being two to five fold increase over the general population risk. So in some cases, if we use breast cancer for an example, let's say I'll give you a hypothetical scenario. <laughs> let's say that. Um, my sister was recently diagnosed with breast cancer and she was found to have a mutation in the ATM gene. Um, and then I undergo testing and I was found to have that same mutation in the ATM gene. Um, my clinician would, would likely recommend that I pursue increased breast cancer screening to manage, um, to manage that risk. So instead of having a mammogram every year, um, I might have a mammogram and a breast MRI every year to try to increase the chances of detecting something early um, one is more treatable if I were to be at risk. So, so I guess two takeaways there are, one, if you have a family member with a mutation, 
you may or may not have it. You may test positive or you may test negative. Um, and two, if you do test positive for a mutation, it doesn't tell you that you have cancer. It just tells you that you're more likely to develop cancer than somebody in the general population. And so oftentimes you can do something about that risk um, to try and um, either detect cancer early or prevent it from happening. Okay, well, that's, that's very helpful. Let's take a short break. After the break, we're back with our interview with Holly Laduca. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Youngest in Brief. You listen when your body says, I'm tired, or I'm hungry. Are you listening? Would you listen if your body said, I have pain and pressure in my abdomen, I feel bloated for no good reason, or I get too full too fast. I'm spotting, but I've already gone through menopause. Or I have to go to the bathroom more often and more urgently than usual. These can be signs of a gynecologic cancer, like cervical, ovarian, uterine, vaginal, and vulvar cancers. Symptoms aren't the same for everyone. If your body says something may be wrong, please listen, learn the symptoms, and get the inside knowledge about gynecologic cancers. Call 1-800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Inside Knowledge Campaign and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Are you thinking about buying medicine online? A search for online pharmacies yields more than 20 million results. But which ones can you trust? Medicines bought from unlicensed online pharmacies can be dangerous. You may get a fake drug, your condition may get worse, or you may experience a bad reaction. Don't put your health at risk. To learn how to find an online pharmacy that's safe and legal, visit fda.gov slash besaferx. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hoffman and this is the Yonkazine Brief. Our interview today with Halle Laduca was recorded on June 6, 2019. If you are now um, listening again to this program um, and you or a family member um, are making an appointment, have an appointment with a genetic counselor, what are some of the things that you want to do in preparation of that meeting? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, being on the, being, I've, actually, I've been on both sides of this. <laughs> I've been a person seeing a genetic counselor and I've been the genetic counselor. Um, so it, um, it, is, it is important to, become, to be prepared to talk about your family history, to collect information on who in your family had cancer, what age did they have cancer, um, if you... You know, what organ did they have the cancer in? All that information is going to be important. And if you have a personal history of cancer yourself, um, just bringing any detailed medical records about your diagnosis, your treatment, um, even pathology of the cancer, because all of that information is going to help a genetic counselor evaluate whether or not genetic testing is appropriate for you and also evaluate um, your cancer risk if, if they find out that maybe genetic testing isn't recommended at this point in time. Um, but that information will all be helpful. So yeah, any, any family cancer history would be helpful. Right. And then it's not only cancer related, but also more general medical related in, in, in that way. 
Yeah, so it really just depends on, on what context you're seeing a genetic counselor in. Sometimes patients will see a genetic counselor specifically because they're concerned about hereditary cancer, but then they find out, oh, wow, we have a family history of aortic aneurysms, and that's something we should be concerned about. So there are some targeted questions that genetic counselors will ask to assess for risk in other areas. Um, but more and more so, uh, genetic counseling is, is moving in a disease-specific area. You know, some people focus on prenatal genetics. Others might focus on cardiovascular genetics. But if you have any concerns about your family history, you can definitely bring those up with a genetic counselor, and they'll be able to help, um, help guide you the appointment. Now, a, a last question. Um, these uh, advantages in genetic uh, counseling, um, the fact that we are be able to probe and see um, what may happen with us or how we are made in that respect, how is that going to change the future of medicine? Now, this is a loaded question because I know there is a lot of answers to that. <laughs> But in, in the case of, for example, with embryogenetics and um, the, the poster that was presented at ASCO, and some of the key work that you do in oncology. How is that going to change the work of an oncologist, maybe your work, and, and, and what are we going to be able to look forward to? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I think that, that just what is so exciting about, about genetics is that we, it really helps facilitate personalized medicine. Um, so the more that we're able to identify risk factors or um, things that would predict response to treatment, um, the more we're able to provide personalized care to people. And I think that when you're able to, I mean, the ideal of personalized medicine is to be able to, to tailor your medical management and your treatment in a way that patients who are going to benefit from it will be able to receive it. And patients who are not going to benefit from it can avoid it. So if we use, I don't know, if we use risk-reducing surgery, for example. I mean, even a risk-reducing mastectomy, that's not something, that's not, not a decision that a patient makes lightly. You know, there's a lot that goes into that um, consideration. And, um, you know, just being able to identify people who will, will benefit from, from proceeding with that versus those who probably aren't going to benefit from it is, is huge. And we see that also continued in, in therapeutics. You know, there's, I feel like each year with ASCO, we're hearing, um, more and more about uh, BRCA1 or 2 mutation carriers who respond better to certain therapies like PARP inhibitors. And so just knowing knowing who's going to benefit and being able to avoid prescribing you know, certain types of therapies to patients who aren't going to benefit is, is, is huge. And it really helps us tailor medicine to an individual patient's needs. Okay, well, thank you very much. In this edition of the Oncogene Brief, I spoke with Holly Laduca, a certified genetic counselor and manager of clinical research oncology at Amber Genetics. The company is a leading clinical diagnostics company offering genetic testing, which includes screening and diagnosis for a number of conditions, including hereditary cancer, hereditary cardiovascular disease, neurodevelopmental or disorders, epilepsy, and others. In talking to the people at Amber Genetics, one thing stood out for me. Not only have these people a diverse background, they never lose sight of the fact that there is a human life attached to every genetic sample they'd receive and every result they generate. And I guess this is the key. They want to ensure that they deliver accurate results that can be trusted by both healthcare providers and patients. For patients, taking a proactive stand about health and healthcare is empowering. 
So if you consider a genetic test, talk to a healthcare provider to find out if genetic testing is right for you. Together with your healthcare provider, you can find the best next step to take. This is especially important if you think that you may have an increased risk for cancer or another hereditary disease. For more information about Amber Genetics, please visit the company's website at embergen.com. For more information about genetic testing and how this helps doctors in diagnosing cancer, making treatment decisions, visit the website of the American Cancer Society at cancer.org. You can also visit the website of the American Society of Clinical Oncology at asco.org. Here you can find doctor-approved medical information. For us here at the Yonkers in Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your ongoing support, our program is now distributed via iHeartRadio. In addition to PRX Public Radio Exchange, in the United Kingdom, it's distributed via UK Health Radio. And you can listen to our program via iTunes. In Arizona, you can listen to the Yonkers in Brief via Independent Talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, check out our online journal On Cuisine at OnCuisine.com. You can also find On Cuisine on Facebook or Twitter. If you like the On Cuisine Brief and want to help us make this program possible, visit our online journal On Cuisine and click on the link The On Cuisine Brief. Here you can find out more information how you can support our program. And your support for this program is really important. It allows us to bring you interviews with experts involved in the development of novel diagnostics and new treatments. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The Oncazine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wynn, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by Inpress Media Group. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.